Cut, and this is the K Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I've contributed to films with Tal as a writer, and my main specialty lies within 70s cinema and no budget cinema. I'm Rachel. I write for films Fatal. I love classic cinema, lost films, and international movies. My name is Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers over at Films Fatale. I love art house, international cinema, but a little bit of everything in between. And we've got a brand new edition of the Cinematic Sporgasport. So, yeah, it's uh, one of our favorite segments. Uh, our our primary consistent one, anyway. Um, for those of you who are new, this is how it works. So, we've already prefaced the episode by stating what some of our preferred genres or styles or eras are and what we like to do because there's quite a bit of crossover uh within our tastes or there's a lot of crossover with our tastes we like to recommend films to one another so it's a very exciting thing that we do monthly and we invite you listeners at home to partake in such experiment so this month james recommended something to me i recommended something to rachel and rachel recommended something to james and uh, we all, in the second half of the episode, partook in a film that none of us had seen. And that film is going to be Of Time and the City. But we will get into that in a little bit. Uh, first, let's get, on, let's get to our individual assignments. Uh, who wants to go first with who recommended what and how they found it? I'll go first. Okay. Okay, what did you see? Yeah. So Rachel was the one who assigned me this flick, and I think it was something that you've been waiting to assign me, if I remember correctly. Yeah, for a bit. Yeah, so I was assigned the Disney Pixar film Ratatouille, which I had never seen before. Okay, Dish, what did, Dish, <laughs> what did you think? So I've never really been that into Pixar movies, Uh-oh. but I, no, no, I, I don't have anything bad to say about this one. This one was actually fairly entertaining. It's mostly for me, I don't really care for the animation style. That's really where it lies. But no, it was very well written. It was very well produced. Uh, Yeah, no, it was definitely, I can see why people enjoy it. So for those who haven't seen the movie, which I would be shocked to find that many people who haven't, Ratatouille is a story about a young street rat who helps a young man commit fraud and health code violations. Okay, Uh, that's one way of putting it. Okay, no, I just like to say that because it's funny and it, it makes my wife very disgruntled because she's like, it's not about that. <laughs> no, it's, it's about but, a rat that pulls on hair in a kitchen. God. <laughs> also, rats only live like two years, so I'm going to say he doesn't have a long career ahead of him no matter how it goes. Hey, Rachel. Oh, yeah. Rachel, you missed the point of the film. Anybody can cook. <laughs> no, no, good cooking can come from anyone. No, that's true. Yes. Um, I forgot yes. the uh, the second half of the film. Yes. I can't believe they got... Peter O'Toole for that role. That is unbelievable to me. As Anton Ego, who is a very brief part, but a very memorable one. Yeah. So um, back to what I was saying. So yeah, it's about a a young street rat named Remy. And, you know, they do the thing that they do in a lot of these kinds of movies where he has like a very unique gift. And his gift is a sense of smell, which ends up getting parlayed into a passion for food. Which, before you continue, I need to, I'm sure most listeners at home uh, know this already, but if you don't, it's literally a rat, like not a figurative street rat, like it's literally a rat from the street. I think it comes from like a farm. That's true. Yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah. yeah, that little cottage uh, yeah. in the beginning. Cottage or, or yeah, something. 
And Patton Oswalt plays the rat. Yes. Who is named Remy, not Ratatouille. Yes, yes. Ratatouille is a dish. It's a dish used <laughs> in the, the climax. It's, character. No, it, his name is not Ratatouille. It's Remy. So in case they ever make a sequel, which I really hope they don't, it's Remy the Rat. Anyway, please uh, continue. You call it Ratatouille. Ratatouille. <laughs> I actually made that joke to my wife, and she, she wasn't amused. <laughs> but somebody at Pixar will be. Anyway, so uh, what else happens to, to little Remy? So, yeah, he, he develops this love for food, and, um, you know, the... You know, his family and his colony of rats, they live above this cottage of this elderly woman. And um, she has a cookbook by the chef Gusto. And, you know, he's also seen like advertisements for him. But, you know, he's, you know, just has this sense of smell. He can figure out dishes, like break down the ingredients. And, you know, whenever he gets a chance, he tries to steal things that aren't the usual things that they steal from the house. Because they're always like, stay away from the kitchen. But of course, one day he doesn't listen and, um, you know, disaster strikes and they all the colony has to leave. And he ends up separated from the pack and ends up in Paris. And, you know, little did he suspect he ends up actually right across the street. Actually, it was either right across the street or right on top of the roof of the Gusto restaurant. Is it? Uh, I think it's above or something. I don't. Yeah, he, he's on the roof. I don't remember if it was like across the street. I, I, I remember him being either across the street or on top of it. So he kind of like goes in and, he's, you know, obviously it's you know, a dream of his, you know, he's, he's also, um, constantly having conversations with, a an imaginary Gusto. Yeah. Because, uh, Gusto has passed away and that's like the other subplot of the film. Um, you know, Gusto's uh, restaurant is now being run by, Oh, what's the Ian Holm character's name again? I do not remember. I know Linguini is the, uh, is the, um, Oh, I don't want to say who it is, but it's the new recruit. I'll put it that way. Who, um, can't cook worth a damn. And Remy helps him out. And there's that one really boss lady played by Janine Garofalo. Who's like one of my favorite Pixar performances, voice acting works ever. Just amazing. Janine Garofalo is is uh, as a national treasure of television and uh, I guess a Pixar as well, just for this one film and that's all she needs. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, young kid Linguini who just kind of happens upon the restaurant. He, he kind of walks in and has a letter for his mom, who apparently was new. Uh, Gusto and hands it to Skinner. Let's just leave it and, at that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not going to reveal. There, there's a big reveal that happens in regards to that. But yeah, and he's like, "Oh, you can't. You can do dishes because it was like a, a a last favor to his mom who just passed." And uh, he accidentally knocks over a soup, and then he quick scrambles and fills it up and puts random stuff in it. And then Remy sees this and he's like, "No, that's not good." And then he goes and fixes it. And it ends up being served and to a very glowing response. And um, Skinner thinks it was Linguini who did it. So he's like, do it again. And then, you know, he ends up, you know, coming across Remy and forming a friendship with him. And then they figure out this way where, you know, because somehow if he pulls on his hair, it's like he's like a marionette. So Remy ends up basically cooking for him and it kind of snowballs into you know, the food critic ego who <laughs> comes in, he, he hears about what's going on in Gusto's because he already reviewed them once. And he's like, wait, hold on. What? So he goes in and he's like, I want whatever this new chef's food is. And then it kind of escalates from there. And I'm not going to give too much away. Cause there's a lot that I don't want to reveal if you've never seen it, but you know, it was a very interesting movie. And it, 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 I like the idea of that, which, um, 
you know, the idea uh, good cooking can come from anybody. Yeah, as somebody who, uh, I mean, obviously I started Films Fatale, so uh, criticism is very dear to my heart, and I've always viewed it. I understand people's gripes with it, um, but I've always viewed it as like at least a, a legitimate form of um, professing one's feelings about something in a very interesting way. Um, and this film is not anti-criticism at any by any means. It's really... To me, it's like a battle between art as a business and art as something you can pick apart. So, um, yeah, one of the other subplots is that they're trying to turn Gusto's restaurant into something that makes it a little bit more money. Uh, so, like, the idea of, like, stuff that you could, like, cook at home or, like, you know, selling the books. Uh, you know, basically desecrating Gusto's legacy as a means of making a quick buck. Um and then you've got the Antonigo character who's, yeah, again, like a food critic who is going to make or break the establishment. So basically the establishment is not really on its last legs, but there's a number of things that could send this house of cards falling down, whether it's uh, the closure for any reason, including health code violations or a bad review or the next money-making idea that doesn't work. So everything kind of rides and it's like this tug of war where at the epicenter of it is a rat who typically is seen as like, a dirty vermin who can't be a part of this, of this establishment yet. He's the sole thing keeping it kind of going, which I think is really beautiful. I don't know, it's, it's a very heartwarming film. Also, um, it was funny. Uh, my, my wife was telling me, uh, something that ended up just being a fan theory that Bradford actually, um, refuted and said, wasn't actually the case. I think I know what it is. <laughs> it's, um, it's that the, the cottage and the old woman were actually egos, mom in her house oh yeah yeah they show that, that makes sense but he said that w- he wishes that it was that deep but it's not and i was like you know what you shouldn't have said anything you should have just let it ride and the whole thing with um because he uh because in the end remy actually does make ratatouille for ego and it kind of brings him back to his childhood and uh one of the things was the fact that he used saffron in it which which is from that area usually yeah and it wasn't in the dish normally so yeah it was a. Uh, you know, that, that's why uh, she told me that. I was like, wait a second, what? And I looked it up and I was like, oh, it's not actually true? Because that would have been really, really slick writing if they pulled that off because it was just coincidental. Apparently, it had to do with um, the design work of things being similar things in both kitchens. And they said that they needed to kind of repeat use of items because of the time crunch they had. And then she also told me that because uh, there's a part where he was going to throw Remy off into the river and uh she actually told me that that's actually the same spot uh that bridge uh, the bridge in the river was where in the hunchback of notre dame where the gypsies were trying to escape they were actually going through that way and i was like oh i don't know if that was intentional but that's actually kind of interesting that is interesting anyway back to that theory if i know the internet that theory will have a long life regardless of what the creators say (laughs) on one hand i see why you want it to be true because it would bring things full circle thematically but on the other hand i do love the idea that food unites people and that includes people outside of the same social circles so i like seeing it that way as well where it just so happens to be a dish that reminds people of home no matter where home is whether it's a literal domicile or if it's a general area or town I think we all have a dish like that. Actually, why not? What is a dish like that? Just no planning. Let's share some of our favorite dishes. 
My mom has a really great mac and cheese recipe with tons of spices in it, and I'm going to cook it sometime this winter, and it definitely brings me home. Are you allowed to share what those spices are? Uh, well, there's a lot of Tabasco. Ooh, okay. I, I, I'm not going to lie. I want to try that. I, I'm a spicy type of guy. I already want to try that. That's funny because my mom has a mac and cheese that she makes that I really like. There you, <laughs> you go. You can't go wrong with mac and cheese. Well, uh, the one I was going to bring up is uh, not my mom's mac and cheese, although that's good too. My mom's um, uh, veal schnitzel dish is like one of my favorite things ever. Like she'll like overmake the amount, yet there's never any leftovers. We all love it so much. So, um, yeah, it was uh, lovely to share. Um, on perhaps a much less personal level, um, we've got. Uh, the pick that you recommended to me. Now, why did you recommend this one to me, James? Why did I recommend it? Yes. Because this isn't one I would actually recommend to everybody. I think it just seems like knowing the kinds of stuff you'd like, I thought this might be up your alley because it's kind of more, I don't know what to call it. It's 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 a very subtle film. Peculiar? Yeah. Subtle, subtle but peculiar. Well, I'll tell you this. I never know how James picks are going to go because I feel like sometimes they're exceptionally out there and uh, I, I think you like to get a rise. Um, this is one of my favorite James picks. I feel like this is one that I really, really liked and it's not for everybody, but I personally kind of really got something out of it. So th this is The Good Times Kid. So The Good Times Kid is uh, is an indie film by uh, Azazel Jacobs which I believe was a festival circuit, darling. Now, I brought this up when you first assigned this and I was looking into it. What's immediately striking right off the bat is that this is a film that was made with leftover film stock from another production. I don't even know what it is. Interesting. That will be interesting later in our episode. Ah, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, for, for reasons, if you watched Of Time in the City, uh, found footage, etc. Um, so... This film, you could tell, but at the same time, not in a bad way. Like, it looks grainy, and it looks like it comes from, like, a very low-quality camera, but it's still shot so beautifully, in my opinion. And it's still, like, it's the charm of low-budget filmmaking, not the the qualms of it. So, Azazel Jacobs here has a very interesting film, which he briefly stars in as well. Otherwise, you've got a few people... Um, who I don't think have really been in anything else. So like Sarah Diaz comes to mind, who I actually thought was quite charming in this. And it makes me sad that she's like not been in anything else. Um, but yeah, just like off the top of my head, I really resonated with this. To me, it reminded me of a lot of, let's say singular films that I really like. So like Harmony Korine's um, Gummo, for instance, or, um, I don't know, just so many different things. Stuff by Costa Rica, like maybe um, Time of the Gypsies. Uh, this just felt like you were in a different realm or a different reality. And it's not a very nice one. It's a fairly gritty one. But at the same time, I didn't really want to leave from a filmic aspect. I just really liked being in this weird, this weird plane of time. I say it's the best Jim Jarmusch film that he didn't direct himself. I can kind of see where you're getting at with that because it's so lo-fi, so like minimalist, small cast, quirky, 
But it's also like Jim Jarmusch seems to have like a lot of like narrative traits. I feel like this is a lot looser on the narrative front. It's more like a state of mind. Yeah, I could see that. So there is a bit of a story to this. It's more of like a character study or again, like a setting kind of analysis. Um, the uh, the loose concept. Also, another film that it reminded me of on this topic is the uh, François Truffaut's Jules et Jim. Uh, the idea of kind of, it's not really like a love triangle in this instance. And Jules et Jim is kind of one in a loose sense as well. In this, it's a little it's a little different. So there are two people of the same name, um, one enlisting in the army and another one who like gets papers to do so because they send the papers to the wrong person and they meet up at the actual like recruitment center and suddenly their lives collide, including uh, the one Rodolfo, uh, you know, they're both named Rodolfo Cano, uh, the one who is with Sarah Diaz's character and they're not exactly like, my interpretation is they're not exactly like have, living the best life or like living the happiest life and everything else afterwards is kind of just a series, not of vignettes, but just of circumstances that just kind of happen after this happens. So you could call it aimless. I call it fleeting. I think it's a more preferable way, way of discussing it. It's not for everybody this film, but I don't know. I kind of got lost in it. I wouldn't have minded if it went even longer than an hour 20. Seriously. Yeah, it was a, it's a, it, that's the thing is it's a short film, but it never feels like that. But I think the thing I really like about it is the fact that it kind of coasts along, but the care, there's something about the characters that it, it keeps you interested in what's happening next, even if nothing's really happening. Absolutely. And it's not like voyeuristic with how low quality it is and low quality in terms of like the film stock and everything, not like it's poorly made. Um, it never feels like it's voyeuristic, but it feels like, you're the one holding the camera almost watching this stuff happen not in a documentary sense but like a let's make a film together sense like it really brought me back to like my my undergrad specifically but uh also in our program rachel we did that um the uh the movie making with the uh the bolex so i mean it reminded me a little bit of that as well yes i remember that well did you get around to this film rachel no i didn't uh been very busy lately well, it'll remind you of the uh, the Bullock's filmmaking class for sure. Honestly, it kind of the vibe kind of reminded me of uh, me and you and everyone we know a little to, an, to a bit to a bit of extent. Less of a grandiose scope, but like thematically, when it comes to like the uh, the idiosyncrasies of human nature, yeah, I get that as well. So overall, what do you think? Yeah, again, this is one of my uh, one of my more uh, favorable James picks. I for sure resonated a lot. Like awesome. I, I'm always interested in what you're going to recommend because they're always, again, interesting in to some degree. But this one, this is one where it's like the Anton Ego thing happened, where it just like something resonated with me, and it's a it's a it's a je ne sais quoi. I don't know what it was, but something was like James usually recommends off kilter things, but th- this one is still off kilter. But it kind of just worked with me, and I'm not sure if it's the uh, the cinematography or that these quirky characters were my kind of quirky i'm not sure what it was but i yeah this is one of the because i know we've done like a retrospective before um this would be up there for one of the 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 better like one of my favorite picks that you've given me for sure that's amazing that's awesome well i like to keep it interesting well i think it's like it appeals to the lo-fi thing that i like but i think it has the exact art house sensibilities that really are in your favor 
Yeah, maybe that's what it is. It's the again, it was reminding me of Emir Costa Rica a little bit. Um, well, you know, when you're getting to those types of filmmakers, yeah, you're speaking my language. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, I guess I'll jump in with mine. It was After Hours by Martin Scorsese, mid '80s, and. It's interesting. It takes place in New York in the middle of the night in the 80s, and that's basically all you need to know about it. But it's a kind of worker drone guy. Like, I think he does data entry or something. And he essentially goes on a hookup with a pretty girl he just met. But, of course, he runs into trouble when he gets there, and I won't spoil it, but essentially when I watched this movie, I thought it was the gritty reboot of the screwball comedy. Because this movie is... It's not super light. It's not super funny. It's very dark. There's a lot of really hard stuff in this film. But there's this zaniness and sort of randomness that's underneath it all. And so it is definitely a dark comedy. But yeah, it's it's a bit of a tough watch, too. Now, I don't recall because I know you've seen uh, like for even longer than I have been. You've been like uh, into the Oscars, the award season. So you're obviously going to be at least a little familiar with Scorsese. Like how into him just in general are you? I'd say medium. Medium. Okay. So with that in mind, how did you find this? Which I consider like one of his more underrated films. Well, definitely wasn't my favorite, but I really liked how he balanced the different tones. And like I said, I think it functioned really well as an update of a genre. It wasn't, um, it was making something new out of old tropes and creating entirely its own thing. I don't know what it is. I only got to this film for the first time a couple of years ago, and I instantly found it like hilarious to the to the point where the finale, which I dare not spoil, um, actually had me like in in pain. Like I think I pulled a muscle from laughing so hard. I think um, it's the Kafka esque idea that, um, without giving too much away. Uh, it's like this idea that sometimes it's just not your day or it's just not your night and like exactly. nothing and is going to go through everything. <laughs> exactly. You just go through everything, but it's, it's a lot more than that as well. It's also this idea of a cyclical monotonous lifestyle. And he's not just this uh, data entry clerk or whatever he is, this bureaucratic, whatever for, um for no rhyme or reason. There's an obvious metaphor here for just how, kind of pitiful life can be for the everyday person, but through the heart of, of New York city, you know, in the wee hours of, of the morning. So in an era where New York city was really kind of struggling. That's true too. That's also very important. So it's not so much like the high life of it. It's discussing, you know, the everyday person amongst everyday people. Also Cheech and Chong are in it. And that, that's a thing. <laughs> that's like the only thing about the film, which I would consider like one of my favorite comedies ever at this point. The only thing about the film where I'm like a bit of a head scratcher, where I'm like, I'm not concerned that they're here, but it, it didn't give them time to shine. And it also t- kind of takes me out of the film. Cause it's like, Oh, it's Cheech and Chong as Cheech and Chong pretty much like in any other standalone film. So it's like kind of like a pourquoi, <laughs> you know? Um, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, you, you know, you were alluding to the darker themes of the film. Did you get anything kind of poignant out of that? or? Yeah, um, I think it was more the randomness of how life can affect you and how you can run into bad things without warning. And this guy, like, he doesn't really bring any of this on, on himself, and yet he constantly gets beaten down by life through the night. 
There's a very interesting, albeit marginally graphic allegory with a rat stuck in a mousetrap that you find earlier or like somewhere, like I think in the first third of the film, uh, when things seem to be at least going decently, I think like he's kind of just living the night before it all becomes like a permanent nightmare. The theme of this episode is rats. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. Um, yeah, they're all loosely connected, these films, because it's uh, After Hours, which is a time, the Good Times Kid, which is about like, uh, you know, kind of like in uh, unfavorable settings, kind of like After Hours. Uh, after Hours has a rat, so does Ratatouille. They're, they're all loosely connected in some sort of a way, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, uh, James, I know you're like a, big advocate for this film yes i saw i don't even remember when i saw it but i saw it years ago and i think honestly it's definitely one of his best films to me there's just something it's it's that rare film that sort of just kind of sits on the side of a great director's filmography like this was made under specific circumstances and it's nothing like it has been seen before and nothing like it has really come after it. But I I like the way it's written because there's a lot of things that are kind of echoed throughout the film. Like just, there's a lot of things that just kind of seem to come full circle. Like the whole, uh, what was it? The bagel paperweight. That, oh yeah. That, ends up be, that becomes one of the things that starts everything comes back full circle or the whole, you know, the paper mache sculpture or just, just all these things or the fact that he's kind of like, looping back and forth between a few specific locations and the same people pop up again and again. Yeah. And just the round of the curtain characters coming back in and out. And but yeah, just like the zaniness of it all fun fact. And I didn't know this until I was like looking up some stuff about uh, this movie to talk about on the pod. Apparently Tim Burton was originally supposed to direct this. Oh, I'm kind of I want to see that version. Now I want to go to the alternate universe where that happened. Well, that's the thing. Because we have this one, I'd like to see what it's like. But if we weren't to get this one because he made it, I would have been very upset because I personally also really love this film. But yeah, I, I kind of feel the same way where this is one of my favorite Scorsese films for sure. Uh, but I also could see why it wouldn't be somebody's uh, favorite Scorsese film because it really is. Um, it's profound. It's acquired taste. It's acquired, but it's, it's also... Not in any bad way, but a little juvenile as well, you know, with the, uh, the, oh, yeah. the, uh, the turmoil that this poor guy goes through. And the whole caper story and I don't know. Yeah, there, there's definitely like a cheekier, sillier side to the film. Uh, but I don't know, sometimes to me that resonates really well. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's in my top five Scorsese films as well, but. Oh, Here's yeah. a question. Rachel, do you think this would make a good musical? Ooh. Very well could, but then again, as we've learned, just about anything can make a good musical, so. After Hours. That's true. Featuring. I don't, After Hours just seems like it could make a really good one. Or. Uh, if It'd we, be tricky to stage. If we do the Dark Side of Oz again, and we play uh, The Weekends After Hours during this film, would that even work remotely? <laughs> I wouldn't know. I don't know the weekends after hours. Uh, it's like an '80s sounding album. It's the one with the blinding light song, which is played on the radio like all the time within the last couple of years. Uh, I don't think it has any correlation with this film, but they're both '80s aesthetic, and they're called After Hours, and they're supposed to represent, you know, after hours. So I don't know, maybe worth a shot. But uh, let's get to things that are a little bit more uh, better assembled. Let's say. Let's oh, get to. Time again, after hours, time. 
Yeah. Oh, there you go. There you go. They're they're all loosely connected, and it was unintentional. Uh, We've been hanging out too much. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, Rachel, why did you pick our collective pick? Well, I saw that it got a really great reception at Con, and it just seemed cool. And two of us are really into film preservation. I think James got dragged along for the ride. So I just thought this would be a really neat thing because it's kind of a pastiche movie. Um, so Of Time in the City is a documentary by Terence Davies, and it's basically chronicling a period of time in Liverpool. But it's made entirely of this narration by him, which is basically a cross between a poem and a prayer. And it's all this footage of mid-century to now, but mostly mid-century. It starts with World War II and ends roughly now in Liverpool. And it's just this incredible portrait of this time period in that city, which this unique city. And it kind of doubles as a, what's the type of cinema called? Like a man in a movie camera, the uh, City Symphony. Yes, it is a City Symphony. That That's pretty much it. Yeah, this is a City Symphony that doubles as a film essay as well. So it's kind of like if you mixed uh, Guy Madden with... Um, it reminded me so much of my Winnipeg, even though they're totally different. Yeah, because that's the vibe I got. My Winnipeg yes. is definitely a little bit more crazy, avant-garde, and, and avant-garde. Whereas this is a little bit more warm and touching, but also wondering where it all went. I feel like, um, you know, so it's like uh, Guy Madden meets uh, Ziga Veritov meets uh, Chris Marker. Almost, that's the vibe that I got with this film. Also, it was really awkward timing because they had a whole section on the Queen's coronation, and I had a sad moment. Yeah, but I mean, I, I mean, we didn't know that going in because uh, keep in mind, listeners, that uh, we had not none of us had seen this one beforehand. But um, you know, I was talking before about the uh, the brief runtime of the Good Times Kid and how I could watch it forever. I kind of feel like this ended exactly when it needed to. I feel like if I meandered for too long, it would have lost the uh, the prestige of the film. <laughs> Agreed, it was really tight. Yeah, it was really tight. It said exactly what he needed to say. This is a man who clearly chooses his words, images, sounds very wisely. And, you know, there are some filmmakers like him or the late Godard, Recipes Godard, who remind me of film as a piecing together medium more than... Because, like, a lot of films try to disguise this as seamless, but they remind you of the art of collage or the art of assembly. I could have just watched the footage without the narration for ages and ages. Yeah, even that was like well-selected, well-edited, well-presented. But it's the words on top that just, yeah, they give such juxtaposition or meaning to so many things. So like if you see um, some religious imagery, for instance, which you see quite a bit of, but what he says on top about like his own beliefs is what makes it really profound. And his growth and this sort of you-can't-go-home-again vibe. Yeah, it's like everything is, is hinged upon memory and film can only capture so much, so allow him to present himself as much as he can. Yeah, I liked it. It, was a, it felt like a very personal film. Oh, yeah. And I think that's where it really helps the film resonate because, I mean, this could very easily have been something very boring and by the numbers, but I think just like the writing of the dialogue over top mixed with the footage – Especially, I, I think uh, one fun moment was uh, the shots of the Beatles and talking about um, when rock and roll became popular and he had a disdain for it and ended up getting <laughs> into classical. Yeah. You know, it's a really interesting portrait to paint of, you know, 
taking on the history of an area anywhere in the world is very tough to do because there's so much nuance to everything. But I think he hit on the marks that was important to him. And I think that's really what tied this film together. So confession time, this was an emergency pick because my last pick fell through at the last minute. And so I quickly Googled what are some good documentaries and this came up, but I think it turned out well. Amazing. Well, I'm uh, very happy that it it worked out. And I feel like of the collective picks, because it's really tough to find a film that all three of us have not seen. Um, uh, Lord knows I tried because I had to come up with this collective pick this week. Um, It's really tough, but... You know, it's interesting what we get sometimes. And I feel like with this, it's so not that any of them have been bad per se, but this felt like the discovery of a treasure. And it's like, wow, only through this could we have stumbled upon this. Yeah, it, it was just a splendid, splendid film all around. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy with it. So, yes, thank you for bringing that to our radar, Rachel. And it makes me want to check out everything else by this by this filmmaker, because this was very sound. And I... I anticipate everything else that he has made. And he's got quite a lot of accolades. And Of Time in the City can be seen on Criterion for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. Oh, yes. I think it was only just recently added as well. So I don't think it's disappearing anytime soon. Yes. Fantastic. Well, uh, now we're going to get to our favorite part of the episode where we recommend what we're going to watch next, which is kind of funny how that works. But before we do that, uh, where can all of our listeners find us? We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut, and stick around to find out our smorgasbord picks this month. Yes, we're getting into them very shortly. So, uh, because we went one way around where Rachel recommended James, James recommended me, we're going to go in the reverse order. So, uh, should be all good. Who wants to find out their pick first? I'll find out mine. Alrighty. So... This was tough because I had three different ones that I want to pick. <laughs> Just I don't know. It's funny because it seems like for me, I have absolutely no problem coming up with picks that I know for a fact either of you have seen, but it's, oh, there's just so many of them. Like, which one do I pick? So I, I thought the one that would uh, appeal to Rachel's love of theater and it's a movie. The King is Alive by a Christian Levering. I've heard of it. Uh, it was the fourth movie to be made under the rules of the Dogma 95 movement. Okay. And it deals with a a group of tourists who end up stranded in the Namibian uh, Namibian desert. And, you know, they're kind of trapped in trying to figure out how to survive. And, you know, when things seem to be kind of weary for people, um, one of the characters who is a theatrical manager persuades them to <laughs> put on an interpretation of King Lear. I'm hearing Shakespeare. I'm hearing travel. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's definitely an interesting film. It's not the most amazing film, but it's definitely interesting in in kind of the concept. Okay. Also, Dogma ninety five was really interesting, especially a few of them had like some really interesting casting choices. Like this one has Jennifer Jason Lee in it. That's me. And it's like that's really interesting. So yeah, I don't know. I thought that might be a fun one. Awesome. Well, I guess I better bestow Andreas's gift upon him. Yes, I am eagerly awaiting. Uh, pray tell, what am I watching? Do you want to find out why all our moms cried in 1973? Sure, although that sounds very sad. The Way We Were with Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. 
All right. Okay. So. Yeah, it's a classic, and it's one of those ones you kind of got to see because it's one of those cultural touchstones everyone goes back to. And I know you hadn't seen it last time we talked, so I'm hoping that's still true. I for sure have not seen it. Uh, typically, when people ask, like, are you uh are you a Streisand person or a Liza Minnelli person? I'm for sure like Team Liza Minnelli. So I am very uneducated when it comes to Barbara Streisand. I think you'll fall a little bit in love with both of them in this one. Uh, Streisand and Redford, not Minnelli. She's not in there. <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, well, I, I'll tell you this. I am a very big fan of Robert Redford as an actor. A filmmaker as well, but even more so an actor. So even for that alone, I'm like, really, I'm, I'm stoked for this already. All right. Fantastic. Well, uh, it's my turn to to recommend something to James. So I was going to go with like something like a big Titanic sort of classic from yesteryear. But instead, I, I'm trying to like match sensibilities because that's like, that's what James would do. James would not just pick films. He'd try what to pick would James do? Exactly. <laughs> so it's a film from yesteryear. That still holds, holds true. Uh, this is not a 70s film. It's right on the cusp at 1968 it's uh a spaghetti western which to me is kind of like what low budget filmmaking was back in the day especially in italy um but it's not just that it's the height of a of a director who made it big in the underground scene and tried to make a masterpiece with it this is sergio corbucci's magnum opus the great silence i've never even heard of this so this is a spaghetti western um, starring Klaus Kinski and uh, the late fantastic Jean-Louis Tritignon, who I'm a very big fan of, who uh, plays a mute, um, not really like a gunslinger, but like, yeah, like a, like, a, like a Western badass, let's say. And it's a rare Western that takes place during the cold. So it's not like really hot temperatures. It's quite the opposite. Everything kind of feels barren everything kind of feels like dreadful i don't want to say too much i don't want to the less you know the better but it also has a score from drumroll please inyo murakone so that's always good news all righty i'm excited now i'm interested to see you said klaus kinski's in it after uh i'd been assigned a giri the wrath of god i definitely want to see more with him in it well, uh, this could be uh, a good pick then. So you've got uh, him and Jean-Louis Tritignan, who is one of the greatest actors of all time. Rest in peace. Just makes me sad. Anyway, that's what you're getting for this. And I understand you're in charge of the collective this month. Yes. So I'm going to get into what we're all going to watch. So I'm going to be very selfish. <laughs> um I've brought her up on the podcast before, but I'm going to bring her up again. I am a stupidly large fan of the Icelandic queen Björk, who is releasing a new album tomorrow. Uh, by the time we're recording this, by the time this episode is up, Fosfora, or Fosfora, I think it's pronounced, uh, will already be up. And we are going to go back to her first film, called the juniper tree uh Ooh, i'm looking forward to this i've been meaning to watch this yeah so i feel like it had a little bit of everything for for all of us so it's you know a small indie film for for james it's uh fantasy drama uh kind of based on a fairy tale for rachel uh kind of like that older aesthetic and feel 
And for me, it's got Bjork, who's like the greatest thing ever. So, um, oh, I mean, I only wanted to watch it for Bjork. I love Bjork. Oh yeah, like I guess that's that's some common ground on this podcast. We all love Bjork in varying capacities. I mean, I'm probably distantly related to her too. So, which uh, makes me uh, entirely nonplussed and <laughs> stoked. If you can wangle those connections, please, please, Bjork, be my friend. Oh, and mine too. And mine too. <laughs> Didn't this just recently get restored also? That's kind of why it was on my mind because it's collectively in uh, the cinephile universe collective conscience, let's say. Uh, it got recently restored and a lot of people didn't even realize that it existed. A lot of people felt like her big acting debut was Dance, was a Dancer in the Dark, but really it was this. Before she took off actually uh this is before her solo stuff this is around the time that she was a member of the sugar cubes so cool yep i am uh quite excited for that and it's nice short and sweet at a nice lean 80 minutes so i feel like you can't really go too wrong with that so those are our picks we are going with the way we were the the king is alive the great silence and the juniper tree lots of zuz in this uh Yes. Not that that's uncommon or anything, but uh, thank you so much for listening to a brand new edition of the Cinematic Smorgasbord. Join us next month to see how these findings went. Check out these films yourself if you haven't seen them before and share your findings with us. Or tune in next week where we'll have a brand new topic. Uh, you know, of course, cinema related. So look forward to that. That was the J Cut. We are now going into the L Cut. Mm-hmm.